looks like everybody's going to get to use this microphone this morning, which I have stuck, and Harley's going to help get it unstuck. You know, it's interesting how sometimes when things are a little bit different, it just always seems like everything doesn't cooperate, you know? You get a flood in Stuttgart, and then you have to have all of this new technology to make it work, uh, and then you end up having to talk into a handheld microphone. It's crazy how all of that works. Um, but I do want you to know that we are in week number two um, of this series, which is entitled Bossy Pants. And this series, Bossy Pants, which I'm kind of getting some, some uh, music through my through ears. I think we got something going live there. Uh, there it is. We got it. Perfect. Uh, we are in this week number two of this series entitled Bossy Pants. And we're going to get it started really, really quickly, like right now. And this series is entitled Bossy Pants because every single one of us have uh, an issue with authority. We have this idea that authority, they're just being some bossy pants, right? And they're, they're too big for their britches, but at the same time, all of us pretty much understand that there has to be someone in authority. There has to be someone in charge that just seems to be the law of nature that, yeah, authority exists. So the question that we tried to unpack last week was this. Who gets to be in that position of ultimate authority? Who gets to be at the top of the authority ladder? And where we tried to land on that topic was this. And if you'll remember correctly, we actually used, uh, if you were in Malvern last week, you got to see one of Harley's portraits of Rihanna. Do you remember that? Did everybody remember that? A good chuckle in the back because Harley's here. <laughs> um, but we landed on the idea that, well, the creator of something, he or she gets to have certain authorities over what they have created. We, we landed on the concept that the artist gets authority over their masterpiece. And this is true for our created world today that we experience every single day. And God, as the creator over everything that we see, God as the creator, well, he gets authority over what he has created. And that includes you, that includes you, that includes me, that includes us who are watching online right now in Stuttgart and possibly in Malvern as well. God, as the creator, well, he gets to have authority over what he's created, even when we don't understand why God does the things the way he does. He's still the artist. Even when we don't understand something as it relates to God, he is still the creator. He, as the creator, as the inventor, he gets to claim that position of ultimate authority, kind of at the top. But at the same time, anything like me, we still don't really like submitting to authority. I mean, I struggle with it. Maybe you don't, but I do. I have a hard time with authority, and it just comes so very natural to all of us. It just comes natural for me to push back and to not like it when someone tries to tell me what to do, right? And the reason it comes so natural is because we have a really long history of rebelling. A long history. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve, we have been rebelling against authority. And God is very well aware of that fact. But thankfully, and, and thankfully is not a strong enough word, but thankfully our Creator, He loves us so much that He is willing to delay dealing with our rebellion. And as amazing as it sounds, He moves toward us in love. He moves toward us in love. I mean, God gives us the opportunity to choose whether or not we are going to submit to Him as our ultimate authority. He gives us that opportunity. He doesn't use His authority to crush us. 
I mean, that's my experience. My experience is when someone is in authority, they use that authority to crush me. That's not what God does. In fact, God does the exact opposite. God used his authority to crush himself. Because he came to this earth, he sent Jesus, God with a bod, right? He sent Jesus to this earth to pay the ultimate sacrifice for the price of your and my rebellion against God. That's love. That's, that's, I mean, for the entire world, for you, for me, for everyone, God crushed himself as a sacrifice. Gives each and every one of us the opportunity to submit to him as our ultimate authority and then to be welcomed into the family of God. Why? Because he loves us. God is love. But he also gives us another choice, right? We have another option. We have a choice. And that choice is we can reject him as our ultimate authority. We can say, no, I'm going to kind of be in charge of my own life. I'm rejecting you as my ultimate authority. And then we have the opportunity to pay the, the consequences, to pay the price of that rejection, which is eternal separation from God for all eternity. But we, we have that option. So, I mean, this is some really heavy stuff that we talked about last week and that we are going to uh, continue talking about this week. And it's this. God truly, truly desires to have a connection with me and you. He really wants that connection for all eternity. And he made it possible because of the ultimate sacrifice, because he loves us. So we can trust him even when we don't understand him. We can trust him even when he does things that do not quite line up with the way I think they should be done. But, if I do trust him as my ultimate authority, and you have made the decision to trust him as your ultimate authority, and those of you who are watching us online, I don't know what camera we're on right now, but if you have made the decision to trust him as your ultimate authority, you know, with our day-by-day -day decisions, decision-by-decision, day-by-day. The question that we want to begin unpacking this morning is this. How do we know how to submit? What are God's expectations? What are His values? What's the who, the what, the why, the when, the where, right? I mean, how do we know what it is we're supposed to do to follow Him, to submit to Him? What are the rules? Are we just left to guess the mind of God? I mean, look, guys, you don't know, some of you know me well, some of you may not know me as well, but I'm going to be real honest with you. I can't guess the mind of my wife. How in the world am I going to guess the mind of the Creator? If I, I'm, am I expected to guess what God wants from me and how He wants me to act and react and what He wants me to do? If your experience is anything like mine, um, you have been expected at times uh, to try to guess what your friends expect out of you. You've been tried to guess from time to time maybe what a family member expects out of you. And if you're anything like me, you're wrong most of the time. When you're left to guess, you're just, I don't know. And here's the deal. I can see my friends. I can have a face-to-face -face conversation with a family member, and I still get it wrong most of the time. So how in the world am I going to be able to guess the mind of God? How am I going to know what it is that God expects out of me? Who, by the way, I can't see, and I can't have a face-to-face -face conversation, you know, nose-to-nose, -nose, kind of the way we're doing this right now. I, I can't do that. I can't have that type of relationship or that type of conversation with God. So I'm just going to be very honest. If we are left to guess 
what God expects from us, there's no way. There's no way we're ever going to be able to understand how we are to submit to Him and how we are to follow Him if we're left to, left to guess. I'll take it even a step further. One step further. What if you know, God did have a conversation with me and He did tell me what He expects out of me and how He expects me to submit and what the rules are for me. Um, and He had that conversation with me, but He had a whole different conversation with you. And your rules and your regulations were a little different, you know, and your expectations were a little different than mine. You know, there's one set of rules for this country, there's one set of rules for this country, there's one set of rules for the United States of America. What do we do? I mean, how do we know? How do we figure out what we are supposed to do day by day, decision by decision? How in the world are we going to know God more? I mean, since he's the creator and he knows everything about his creation, how in the world can we know ourselves more? How in the world can I know what my purpose is? How in the world can you know what you have been designed to do as a part of creation if we're just left to guess? Well, we're going to answer that question next week as we get, no, I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to talk about it today. That's a joke. Uh, hopefully it, somebody laughed. I think Harley laughed. Thank you, Harley. Um, our creator... Our ultimate authority, he's not left us to guess. He's not left us wandering around in the dark looking for the light switch, wondering, how do I submit, God? What are the rules, God? How do I know what to do, God? How do I follow you, God? He's not left us in a dark room wondering what our expectations are. See, the Creator has given us everything that he wants us to know for now. And according to him, what we have been given is enough for now. And when God speaks, He speaks with His full authority, and it comes with His full authority as the, as we talked about last week, ultimate authority. And because of the way He speaks to us, we don't have to really worry about Him changing His mind. We don't have to worry about Him saying one thing to this group of people, a different thing to that group of people. We don't have to worry about getting into the middle of the game and the goal line suddenly begins to move. We don't have to worry about that. Because He's going to say this. He has said... The same thing to every group of people, every person, every country. So, yes, God has given us the answer to those questions. We're not asked to wander around in the dark looking for the light switch. Today, God speaks to us through His Scripture. Through His Scripture. Which, by the way, we have available in book form. Now, this is, um, this is one of our kids' Bibles in, in 252. This is one of those. I, I meant to grab a different one. Uh, this morning before I left the house, but I forgot. And so I was like, oh, I'll grab one. And it was kind of cool, right? It's a kid's Bible. Uh, but you know, it's something interesting. It's really not a book. It's, it's really not a book. Crazy, right? I mean, it's so much better than a book. What this is, what we call the Bible, what it is, it's actually 66 individual books written by 40 different people who were hand-chosen by God, and it was written over a 1,500 your period. 66 different individual books written by 40 different people, handpicked by God, and written over 1,500 years. And you know what's interesting about it? It all tells one seamless story. It tells God's big story. Every piece of information works together like this big jigsaw puzzle. God's great big story. I mean, I just can't. That's amazing to think about it. 
like that. We have so under, underscored what this actually is. You take the Old Covenant, Old Testament, the New Covenant or the New Testament, and you put them together, and what you have now is everything that we need to understand what God wants us to understand about Him for now. We have everything that we need. You take the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, you put it together, and you have everything that we need to understand about ourselves and about our purpose and about this creation that is around us for now. Everything that we need. You take the Old Covenant, you take the New Covenant, you put it together, and you have everything that you and I need to know about how to submit to God for now. God provides every bit of that in his scriptures, every bit of that in this group of 66 individual books written by 40 different people over the course of 1,500 years. And there's no authority over God's word, none. There's not a pastor, there's not a pope, there's not a president that is over God's word. God allows no one, no authority to be placed over the scriptures. So ultimately, it looks like this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is what it looks like. God followed by his word. And then everything else, all of the other authorities that we have access to, you can, you know, you can arrange them however you want to. They fall behind that in a different arrangement. But first, God and God's word. So all of that simply to say this, this statement. The writings collected in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, this is our supreme authority as of June the 13th, 2021. This is it. This is our supreme authority. God has given us scriptures so that we can clearly find our way to Him. And it is completely sufficient to do just that. And it's not only sufficient to allowing us to find our way to God, it's also sufficient in directing the way that we're supposed to follow Him every day, decision by decision. It's sufficient to do that. Now the Old Covenant, what we think of as uh, Genesis through Malachi, the Old Covenant... It's a collection of writings that describe God's covenant between himself and Israel. Everything in the Old Covenant, Genesis through, it's all about God and God's covenant, his relationship with one group of people, the nation of Israel. Um, if we were to summarize the entire Old Covenant with one word, we would use the word law, L-A-W, law. We would, we would summarize the Old Covenant with law. Now, the Old Covenant, it was written over the course of about, uh, give or take, a thousand years. And it was finished, so the final period was put into the Old Covenant about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And you know what's something very interesting about the Old Covenant? Everything in the Old Covenant points at that key event, the birth of Jesus. But the Old Covenant, again, it was written, and it is the covenant between God and Israel. But the New Covenant, the New Covenant's different. The New Covenant's special. And here's why it's special. It's special for us. special for me, I know, because I'm not from Israel. Because the new covenant is God's covenant between him and everybody. Everybody. That's you. That's me. We get to be a part, and we get to be involved in that new covenant. That's God's covenant between himself and all mankind. And if I were to use one word to describe that new covenant, it would be grace. Whereas the old covenant would be law. The new covenant's grace. Um, now, the New Covenant, it was written and it was compiled pretty much from the time that God stepped into his creation as Jesus, um, and it was finished 
before the last of the apostles had died. The apostles being those that actually worked. And we, we think of them sometimes as the, the disciples of the apostles. They, they, they knew Jesus. They talked to Jesus. Uh, so the new covenant was written in a much shorter time period than the old covenant. Um, it was pretty much completed between 40, written between 45 A.D. and 95 A.D., right in that neighborhood. And you may be asking, why in the world is this series significant? Why are we having a conversation about uh, the authority of Scripture and how it is significant for us? Well, here's the reason why. This is the reason we feel like this is a needed series. A survey was taken several decades ago by very, uh, or several years ago by a very reputable organization, and that survey told us that only about half of people who consider themselves Christians, who consider themselves followers of Jesus, only about half, one in two, 50%, not a math guy, figure that out, only about half actually believe that the Bible is completely accurate in its teachings and in its principles. Only about half. So if we have a room here of about you know, 60, 70 people, that means that that survey says that about half say, eh, I'm not sure if I believe in the accuracy of the, in the teachings and the principles of the New Covenant. And simply put, that's a problem. That's a problem because uh, the basis for my faith and our faith, the basis for our faith is what the Scriptures teach about God. It's what the te- Scriptures teach about creation, what the, teacher, uh, teachers, what the Scriptures teach about sin and salvation and eternity. That's the basis of what we believe. And if the Bible's not completely reliable, well, can we trust any of it? Can we trust it at all? It's either the Word of God or we really can't be sure. Now, very quickly, I want to give a, a quick disclaimer here because I do think this is important. If you're uh, in this room or maybe you're watching us online, um, you may hear that and that may make you take a step back. Well, with what I just said in mind, I want to give an important note. Jesus never said in his three-plus years of ministry, Jesus never said, guys, if you want to follow me, Here's what you do. you got to believe in the, cre- in, in, in the creation story from the Old Covenant. You've got to believe in Noah and the ark and the flood. You have to believe in the Exodus. You have to believe that Joshua walked around the city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. you got to believe in Daniel and the lion's den, David and Goliath. Elijah called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Believe in that and then follow me. Now what Jesus said. Jesus never said that. Jesus simply said this. Believe in me and follow me. That's it. Believe in me and follow me. So all that other stuff, we'll worry about that later. Jesus said, you believe in me, you follow me. What I did is enough. Now, I happen to believe that the Scriptures are authentic, and they are true, and they are accurate, they are trustworthy for one very big reason. You may be sitting there right now saying, well, faith, you you believe it because of faith. No, it's not why. I believe that the Scriptures are accurate and trustworthy and uh, true because that's what Jesus believed. That's why. That's why I believe it, because Jesus believed that. Jesus used the Old Covenant to teach. Jesus, when he was tempted by the evil one in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted Scripture. And here's the way I look at it. If a guy can predict his own death... He can predict his own resurrection, and then he can pull it off. I'm going to go with that guy, you know? I'm just going to do what he does. I'm going to get in line behind him. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus, he believed in the authenticity of Scripture. 
Now, very quickly, I want to give you a little bit of historical truth that I think is very interesting concerning the Scriptures. The earliest believers, immediately following uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, the earliest believers, all that they had access to was the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament, the Torah. That's all they, they had. That, and then they had uh, eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did, what Jesus said, uh, what Jesus taught. That's what they had. They had the Torah, and they had these eyewitness accounts. And I say that like all they had were eyewitness accounts, right? I mean, that's really, <laughs> that's all they had. They just had Peter to talk to who said, yeah, this happened. I mean, wow. How cool would that be? But the early follower, earliest followers of Jesus, they didn't yet have the writings that we think of that make up the new covenant. But this is an important note. This is very significant. Because what they did have is they had access to those eyewitnesses of the events. And they had the very close friends of those eyewitnesses and the close associates of the eyewitnesses and they told them stories about what Jesus did and what Jesus said and what Jesus taught. I mean, you think about it like this. Peter, they had an, the ability to walk up to Peter. And Peter could have said, yeah, guys, let me tell you, here's what happened. Uh, Jesus, I mean, he was crucified. He was dead. He was gone. And we kind of thought we had been following a fraud for three years. We kind of thought, man, we've blown it. We've thrown it out the window. We don't know what to do. This guy's gone. We thought he was the Messiah. He's dead. Didn't add up. Peter would have said, in fact, not only all of that, not only did we think that we had been following a fraud, actually, I denied him. I said three different times, I don't know the guy. I've never met the guy. I've never heard of the guy. I cursed and said I've never been around him, which is one reason I believe the Scriptures are very accurate. Who would write a Scripture and talk bad about themselves, which the, the apostles did a lot? Peter said, man, I, we thought he was gone. and You're not going to believe it. Three days later, there he was. Pause for dramatic effect. Three days later, he was alive. We, did, we couldn't believe it, but he was, and that's what happened. And so, you know, there it is. That's what they had access to. They didn't have the new covenant, but they had access to the eyewitnesses of what happened. And you know what's so interesting to me? Those same eyewitnesses and those same close associates of the eyewitnesses they're still telling us the same things today about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And here's why. Because God inspired those eyewitnesses to do something very special. They wrote it all down. They wrote it down. They said, this happened. We're going to write it down. This is amazing. We're going to write it down. Matthew, sitting, listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Harley and I talked about this last week. So it's just an interesting possibility. He was a tax collector. He would have known the shorthand of the day. He's sitting there, he's listening to Jesus teach, and maybe he's jotting down these notes about what he said and what he did, and man, we've got it in front of us. First person, primary source of what Jesus did. And God actually told them what to write. But what is this collection of Scripture, this collection of writings that we call God's Word, Scripture, what does it claim? What does it claim about itself? What does it say? Well, we're going to... Um, only use two verses from the New Covenant this morning. Two verses from the entire Bible, in fact. Uh, we're going to use two verses, and the verses that we are going to use were written by a guy that wanted to see Jesus healed. And he got his wish. But he wanted that to be the end of it. He wanted Jesus to be dead and done, right? Of course, that's not what happened. 
Three days later, of course, Jesus walks out of that tomb very much alive. But here's the deal. This guy that we're going to read about, his name was Saul. You may know him better as Paul. Um, Paul, he didn't believe it. He hated the fact that people tried to say that Jesus was alive. He didn't believe it. He says, I don't believe it. It's a big rumor. You can't trust those guys. They're just telling us what they think we want to hear. They're trying to keep their position. It's a rumor. It didn't happen. In fact, Paul hated so much that people tried to say Jesus was still alive. He was, a, he was alive. That Paul actually uh, chased down and killed people who said they saw Jesus and who followed Jesus. He chased them down and he, 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 he beat them, he imprisoned them, he tortured them, he killed them. All because they said Jesus was alive. He didn't believe that. This guy hated everything about Christ followers until one day something happened to Paul. Paul met Jesus. Paul gets to see Jesus for himself and realize, oh, he's very much alive. And he's very much in control. So the same Paul who hated everything about followers of Jesus and Jesus himself, after that intervention, Paul becomes a follower of the living Jesus, God himself. The same Paul that hated everything about Jesus, God inspired Paul to write a whole lot of the New Covenant. But specifically this morning, we're going to read about what Paul wrote to a young uh, Christ follower who Paul was training to become a pastor. And his name was Timothy. Some people call this Paul's swan song because it's probably the last thing that he wrote. Um, and this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 16. Paul says, all, big word, right? Not some, not most, not a little, all. All Scripture is inspired by God. That literally means all Scripture is God-breathed. And he goes on and he says, and it's useful. What is useful? Scripture. Scripture is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. So those questions that we kind of posed at the beginning of this morning, you know, how do we know? How do we know? Um, how do we discover who God is? How do we discover who we are? What our purpose is? Paul says, hey, uh, Scripture, that's, that's where you're going to find those answers. Oh, by the way, it's God-breathed. I don't know if you've heard that or not. Then Paul goes on, he says, here's what else Scripture does. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. So Paul answers another one of those questions that we posed at the beginning of our time together, which is, how in the world do we know how God wants us to live? How do we know how it is we're supposed to follow Him? Paul says, um, uh, hey, uh, Scripture, you're, you're going to find those answers in Scriptures, and I don't know if you've heard or not, it's God-breathed. And then he goes on, and he then answers our question about, you know, how, what does our creator assign our purpose here in this creation? How do we know what we're here for? Paul says, well, verse 17, God uses it, what is it? It is scripture, to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. See, um, the answers to these questions, according to Paul, they come from our ultimate authority. Those questions that we have comes from our ultimate authority. And our ultimate authority gave his plan to us through his word through his scriptures, as God inspired and as God breathed his words to the people that he chose, that he selected, they wrote it down for me and you. See, the writings that make up what we call scriptures, they are either God-breathed and therefore completely reliable because God can't lie, or they're completely unreliable. Now, I have come 
to a place in my life. And it is a process, and I'm still on that journey. But I am at a place in my life where I believe that more and more. Do I still struggle? Sure. Sure I do. Uh, do I have doubts occasionally in my life on this? Yeah, sure I do. Of course, I, I do. Do I still have questions that I would love to have answered? Yes, absolutely. But you know what? An, an interesting thing has happened in my life. The more that I get to know the Creator through His Word, the more I dive into His Word, the more I read what He wrote and what He had written, I should say, it's amazing how the more I find myself trusting Him and the easier it is and how the questions begin to be answered. It's amazing. But still, it can be hard to believe, right? I mean, it's so old. It's very old. I mean, we don't have any of the original manuscripts of the New Covenant or the Old Covenant. We don't have any original manuscripts. You see, because it was so old when it was written, the materials that it was written on, it was never intended to hold up for thousands of years. But while we do not have original manuscripts, we do have something that is really super important. We have a lot of copies of the originals. The New Covenant alone, the New Covenant alone, we have over, you're going to be surprised, I think, when I say this, over 24,000 manuscript copies and pieces of manuscripts. Manuscripts meaning what was originally written. We have, we have over 24,000 copies of the original writings. I was shocked to read that. And some of these 24 plus thousand copies of the New Testament have been dated, they have been dated to within 25 years of the original writing. 25 years. A fact that's not often told, it's not often said, outside of maybe apologetics circles, is that the New Covenant, it actually has more manuscript support for its authenticity than any other ancient work that we have access to. More manuscript support for its authenticity. Let me give you an example. Let me see if I can give you a comparison to maybe drive that point home a little bit better. Has anyone ever heard of William Shakespeare? Probably. Maybe. I don't know. If not, thank you, Harley. <laughs> if you've heard of William Shakespeare, you know he was a playwright, right? And he wrote, and, ooh, that was loud, and he uh, lived between the 1500s through the beginning early 1600s, he was a contemporary of Queen Elizabeth I of England, if that gives you any context. But he wrote uh, 37 plays. It's a playwright, 37 of William Shakespeare's plays. Did you know, would you be surprised to know that there are no original copies of 37 of William Shakespeare's plays? None. Zilch. Zero. None. No original copies. And in fact, every copy that we, we do have, it's, either, it's missing some sections from Shakespeare's works. And Sh Shakespeare's works are only about 400 years old. And, and, and add this, they were all done after the invention of the movable type printing press by Gutenberg in 1450. So we only have just pieces. And it came after the printing press. And the printing press should have been a huge advantage for the works of Shakespeare over the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I mean, the New Covenant is 2,000 years old. That's, that's old. The original copies of the New Covenant, they had to be handwritten, right? They had to be uh, handwritten. They had to be hand copied. There was no printing press like 
Shakespeare's works. But you know something that's very, very interesting about these old, ancient copies of the New Covenant? And something that's interesting, in fact, about Shakespeare's works that are only 400 years old. No one, no one questions the authenticity of the works of William Shakespeare. Nobody. I mean, maybe no one is a big statement, but basically no one questions the works of Shakespeare. No one questions whether or not they're real, they're true, they're authentic, they're legit. And their authorship is, accept their authorship is accepted with a whole lot less ancient support, ancient manuscript evidence than the 2,000-year-old New Covenant. The Old Covenant's even older than that, and there's even less, of course, manuscripts that have survived. But something that's interesting about specifically the New Covenant, remember, 24,000 old copies. Our translations that we have today, they are amazingly accurate when they are compared to these super old manuscripts that we do have, that do exist, these 24,000 plus. Our translations today are incredibly accurate when compared to these super ancient manuscripts. And here's the reason why. It's because of the way that they were copied. When someone, when, when they were copying one of these ancient manuscripts thousands of years ago, if one mistake was made, and it could be at the, you know, if you've ever been at the very end of something and you've made a mistake and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to scratch it out. That's not what they did. If one mistake was made, they tossed it. They started over. Because such care was taken in the reproduction of Scripture. When a manuscript would get old, when it would get old, they'd throw it out. They would destroy it. Because they wanted no one to be able to accidentally misread something because of, you know, ink was getting worn or the material that it was written on was tattered. They'd throw it out. They'd say, no, we're, we're going to get rid of that. We do not want any misinterpretations or misrepresentations. So we have astounding accuracy today with our translations when they're compared with the ancient thousand-year-old texts that have been discovered and, by the way, are still being discovered. It's amazing how accurate they are. And some of the texts that have been discovered are old, you guys. Really, really old. One paleographic scientist dated the P-64 papyrus. Now, uh, the P-64 papyrus is a fragment of the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? It's a fragment of the Gospel of Matthew. It is, I think, Matthew 26. It's the part uh, in Matthew where uh, Jesus is anointed by the very expensive perfume before he's crucified, and they, you know, the disciples are like, the apostles are like, well, don't do that. We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. That's the P-64 papyrus. It's that part of Matthew. One paleographic scientist, and this is just one, there's, there's a lot of different examples, but one paleographic scientist dated the P-64 papyrus using the most powerful, uh, uh, most powerful and newest laser microscope technology that was available. He dated the P-64 papyrus to be as either a portion of an original manuscript or an immediate copy, which means this. It could have been written while Matthew and the other disciples were still alive. That's old, right? That's old. Think about it with me for just a second. Think about kind of like this. Because I know this can be hard to take in. I know this can be hard to really just, man, put the screws down on it and 
Just lean into it. I understand. It's been that way for me too. But if God can create the world, if God can plan and carry through with his death and walk out of that tomb alive three days later, I don't know that he's going to have problems with being able to communicate with me and you the way he chooses and that he's going to be able to communicate exactly what he wants us to know and make sure that we get it. Now, the New Covenant writings were gathered, they were copied, they were shared all around the world, all around the, the area, they were shared, shared to us to this day, and they were accepted, but in, in, in this context, they were gathered, they were copied, they were shared, and they were accepted before the early church, uh, by the early church, before the end of the first century. So what that means is this. Scripture was Scripture before the eyewitnesses were gone, basically. It was Scripture. It was understood that this is God-breathed and God-inspired Scripture. This is it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those Gospels, this is it. These letters of Paul, this, this thing that James wrote, this is Scripture. It was accepted by the early church with many of the eyewitnesses still around. That is God-inspired Scripture, and it was done before the end of the first century. Now, years later, many years later, the eyewitnesses, of course, are all gone. They're dead. And the early church leaders began the process to affirm, that's a big word, affirm what the early church had already said. Yeah, this is Scripture. This is it. This is, that's it right there. The, several hundred years later, uh, that, the early church decided they were going to affirm what the first century church had already done. That they were going to put all of the New Covenant-inspired writings together. And they gave this project a name, a name to the collection, and we know it as the Bible. They made that decision. But remember, it's really 66 individual books in this book called the Bible. Now, this is important, and I hope I do a good job of communicating this, but this is very important. Their job was not to say, this is Scripture, because that had already been done. Their job wasn't to say, yeah, Matthew, Scripture, Mark, Scripture, all that, that's Scripture, because the first century church had already done that. Their job was simply to say, yeah, we affirm that the writings that the first century church said was Scripture, it's all there, it's all represented. Everything that they said was Scripture, we have it in this collection called the Bible. So it's like, you know, Okay, they said Matthew was Scripture. Do we have Matthew? Do we have everything right? It's all good. Okay, good. Check. Got it. Do we have Luke? Yeah, okay, good. Check. And so on and so forth. It was just to affirm what that first century church had already said. And the eyewitnesses are still around, right? The ones that wrote the book, they're still around. And to be sure that they got it right. They actually had some tests uh, to determine what was going to make it in here. And these tests are called canonical tests. Test. Canon simply means standard. It's the standard. If you say the canon of Scripture, that's the standard. Okay? And so they had these tests that each of these writings had to measure up to so that they could be sure they had the right stuff in there that the first century church said is God-inspired and God-breathed Scripture. Now, the first of these tests was this. It, was, it had to be written either by an apostle or it had to be written by a known co-worker of an apostle. So Matthew wrote Matthew, obviously, an apostle. Luke 
not an apostle, but he was a very close co-worker with several of the apostles. He was very close to Paul. Some even believe, that many scholars believe, that Luke got a lot of information from Mary, the mother of Jesus. Very interesting. So it had to either be written by an apostle, an apostle, or a co-worker of, a, of an apostle. The second test that they would go through that, that for this process would be it had to contain spiritual content with doctrinal soundness. And it also had to claim to be inspired by God. It had to, this is God breathed, God inspired. And then the third test is it had to be in agreement with all of the rest of Scripture. There couldn't be anything in there that didn't agree with something that was already there. It couldn't disagree. It, it had to be in agreement with other Scripture. And if it passed those three tests... Very, very stringent. If it passed those tests, they placed it into what we know of as the Bible. And, and it's amazing. The same works, these are the same works that were viewed as Scripture by the first century church when the apostles were still alive. That's what made it. That's what we have as the Bible. But you weren't there, were you? I wasn't there. I didn't get to see it. I didn't get to be involved in it. Still tough. One of the ways that God convinces us of things he wants us to know is he tells us history before history actually happens. That's known as prophecy, right? Prophecy. A lot of prophecy in the Bible. Some of it's been fulfilled. Some of it's still yet to be fulfilled. Let me give you an example of an area where God kind of is like, you know, putting his big check mark on it and saying, yeah, this, this legit, guys, y'all need to read this. This is, what it, this is what it is. In the Old Covenant, there are over 300 prophecies pertaining and pointing toward the Messiah. 300. 300 different individual prophecies pointing toward the Messiah. There are things like he had to be born in Bethlehem. That was one. Okay. Now, 300. But if we were just to say take eight. Let's say we took eight of the 300 prophecies in the Old Covenant that had to be fulfilled by the Messiah. The likelihood of one individual fulfilling those eight prophecies, the likelihood is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And you're sitting there like I was sitting there when I read that, like, what? I, uh -huh. I mean, you maybe are a math mind. I'm not. So I have to try to make things a little more you know, like visual for me. So this is what 1 in 10 to the 17th power actually looks like. Let's just say we were to take an area the size of the state of Texas, right? Second biggest state in the Union. We were taking an area the size of the state of Texas, and in that area, we were to fill it full two feet deep. I can't go down that far. Two feet deep with silver dollars. Okay? We were to fill the area the size of the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, and then we were to take one of those silver dollars, and we were to paint it red, like what I have right here. We were to paint one of those silver dollars red. And we were to take this silver dollar in the area the size of the state of Texas with two feet deep worth of silver dollars. We were to drop it in there, mix it all up. And then we were to take a random man or a random woman, fly them in, drop them in the state of Texas, that area of the size of the state of Texas, put a blindfold on them and say, reach in there. And they were to pull out that red silver dollar. That's 1 in 10 to the 17th power, that, mathematically. That's the likelihood. That's the probability. And that's just 8 of 300 prophecies. You may not be convinced. I get it. So let's just say we doubled it. Let's say we took 16. 16. 
of the 300 prophecies that the Old Covenant said the, the, the Messiah was going to fulfill. 16 of the 300. That is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. I know, you didn't get that one, but you probably get this one, right? Yeah, mathematicians and all. No, okay, so I can't get that either. So here's what 1 in 10 to the 45th power looks like. We were to take a ball. This is a big ball. We were to take a ball, and it had a radius, a radius of the distance from the earth to the sun times 30. That's how big this ball is going to be. Radius, 30 times the distance from the earth to the sun. Fill it full of silver dollars. Mix it all up. Take our one red silver dollar, drop it in there, mix it all up. Call that same man or that same woman. They're probably tired by now, but we're going to call them again. We're going to put the blindfold on them, and they're going to reach in, and they're going to grab this singular silver dollar. That is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those 300 prophecies. Every one of them. Here's what I think about that. This is my kind of, you know, my opinion. But the fact that Jesus fulfilled every single one of those 300 Old Testament prophecies, you know what? I think that's pretty good evidence. That this Bible, this thing, this group of 66 individual books written by 40 different people, handpicked by God over 1,500 years, I'd say it's pretty evident this belongs to God, every single word of it. See, all the questions that I have about God, His values, His expectations, all of the questions that I personally have concerning why am I here, what is my purpose, how do I know the right way to follow, how do I know what I'm supposed to do, those answers that all of us struggle with, they're in the Scriptures. They're in the ultimate authority. How to respond, how to love, how to serve, the answers are in the Scriptures. They're here. They're all here. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, Scripture. It's in there. The fact that Jesus lived, He was arrested, He was beaten, He was crucified, and He was put in a tomb, it's in the Scriptures. It's all there. And the fact that three days later, I don't understand it, but three days later, that same Jesus, God with a bod, right? He defeated death, and He gave me and you an opportunity. He gave us a chance at a relationship with the Father. See, every single word of what I just said, every single word of it, it was recorded by people who were either there as an eyewitness or who were very close associates to those who were eyewitnesses. And they were, it was all inspired by God. It was all inspired by God. They were inspired by God to write it down. That's what Scripture is. And we take the Bible and we really, really, really don't, myself, I'm speaking to myself, we really don't grasp what this is. It's not just a book. It's a lot bigger. It's a lot more. So why don't we get serious about reading it? Why don't we get serious about diving headlong into these 66 individual books written by 40 different people handpicked by God over 1,500 years. That is our supreme authority. Why don't we get in there? We got to read it if we're going to know what it says. So that's our next steps for this week. That's what we would encourage this week. 
Give it a shot. Start this week by reading one of the books of the Gospels. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read one of them. So that's a lot of reading. you got a whole week to do it. They're not that long. Just a, maybe a chapter or two a day. Do it over two weeks. If you are brand new to following Jesus and you've really never gotten into reading the Bible, you've never really done that, and you're like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not really into that yet, I would just suggest reading Mark. Mark's the shortest. Kind of straightforward. Just read Mark. If you're, you know, you've been following a little longer, maybe you're a little further on that journey, you might consider reading John, the Gospel of John. But read. And then don't just stop there. Don't stop at reading. Read it and then talk to God about it. Man, have a conversation with God. Have, pray. Talk to God about it. Say, what am I needing to get out of this? And then talk to others about it. Don't just talk to God. Talk to others. Be a part of a small group. Be a part of a small group. As Harley said in the live welcome, in the welcome this morning, uh, small groups are happening. Here in Malvern, they're happening this week. There's still time. Sign up. You want to be a part of a small group? You're watching us right now in Malvern, and you want to be a part of a small group? Hey, let us know. Find, we will get you in a small group. If you're here from Stuttgart this morning or you're watching us from Stuttgart this morning, you want to be a part of a small group, let us know. We would love for you to be a part of a small group. See, this is the ultimate authority that we have access to. Day and night. And it belongs to God. It was inspired by God. God breathed it. Every single word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for revealing more about who you are and about what we were created to be. God, sometimes we struggle. We struggle to know you. We struggle to understand you. But Father, we don't dive into your word for answers. We have questions. We have worries. We have doubts. But we, we never get in the word. We never get in your scripture find those answers. So God, this week, everyone in this room, everyone watching us online, God, help us to get into your word. Not necessarily for answers all the time, but just simply so that we can know you better and so that we can know ourselves better. Father, you are our ultimate authority and you gave us your words. So give us the wisdom to know what to do today with what we've heard and give us the courage to do it. And it's your name we ask these things. Amen.